Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show, the podcast that takes a deeper look at the news of the day and gives you thoughtful perspective about what's happening in America, at home, and what America's doing abroad. Joining me today is Joel Farkas. He is director of the American Strategy Group, of which I am a Washington fellow. We'll cover a lot of topics, uh, the news, the headlines, what they're saying about Trump, what they're doing to Trump, what Trump's doing to them. Uh, And we'll take a big picture look at issues of the day like trade and tariffs. Joel has some thoughts on the serious strikes, Trump's difficulties, and the obvious, boy is it obvious, assault on Donald Trump. Also, you might want to listen to this conversation I had with the current Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. I think you'll find it interesting. Uh, We talk about several things. Well, Claude, uh, I want to rant a little bit uh, with you uh, as the object of my fury. No. no okay. Not, well, <laughs> we can do that. And a lot of this is uh, question marks. I don't, I don't know what's going on on a lot of this. I don't know where it's going. I don't know why it's gone this way. And I just have some questions. I would welcome comments from folks who listen to this podcast, and they can send them to... Sure. They can email us at BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Podcast at gmail.com. Correct. Um, Syria. I don't know. I don't know if this was a great move or not. I know somebody I take seriously, Stephen Cohen, who's a professor at NYU in Princeton. He's a liberal, really liberal guy, writes for the nation. But I, he's very smart about Russia. He was very worried about this. He thought this was a bigger risk than time of the Russian missile crisis, Bay of Pigs and all that. Oh, wow. He thought... This could really get us into war with Russia. But these strikes were so limited, or surgical, if you prefer, that apparently nobody was hurt or killed. Uh, Some facilities were damaged. The message was sent. The signal was sent. We were talking last week with Brian Kennedy. He said, talked about the importance of sending a signal. These were symbolic. I'm not sure they rose to anything other than symbolic. And I'm not going to object to them. I'm just wondering, as other people are, and I may sound pretty conventional here, what part of a broader strategy are they? And what's the message? If you do this again, we'll do this again. I don't think we destroyed his capacity to use chemical weapons forever, or even for a long time. Uh, It was just a signal that we were annoyed, and we have some power, and we can take out some stuff and, you know, uh, reduce some buildings to rubble. But uh, whether it had any long-term effects, uh, I don't. Uh, I don't know. Uh, some of the White House folks are saying, "Well, you know, they do this, we'll be there again." General Mattis, on the other, is saying this was a you know one-time thing. Uh, let's turn to the headlines. Uh, as ugly as they are, the Comey book, of course, is out. And Comey is out. My gosh, he's everywhere. Everywhere. And he's going to wear it out as welcome a little bit, I think. Of course, there are very few people who love him. Uh, and, uh, you know, there have been a lot of Democrats and liberals who've said, you know, this is not great. And he's jabbed Obama. And obviously, you know, the report about Hillary wasn't helpful back then. 10 right. days, 11 days before right. the election. But uh, he's mainly after Trump. I mean, this is, a you know, a guided missile aimed at uh, Donald Trump. Uh, name-calling and so on and so on and, you know, all these terrible things. However, all these things don't amount to anything new. Nothing. I mean, all <laughs> he said all this before, mm-hmm. as far as I can tell. And when it comes to serious stuff like collusion, very little said there. Obstruction of justice, he lays out three or four things that might constitute a case of obstruction, then, but says he has doubts about whether that could be the case. So what's left? Um, a lot of uh, unfortunate behavior 
on his part, some inappropriate stuff by the president. Uh, and I, let me just say it here. I wish the president would just rise above this. So repeat what you were saying to me in the car yeah, for our audience. It's, right. it's a great, great turn of phrase and mind you had. A little early, it would be great if the president would just tweet out about all the Comey stuff. I've seen it, read it. I'm going to rise above it. I'm not going to go that low. <laughs> you know, I've occasionally gone low. You know, I can go low. But this may come as news to you folks. <laughs> I have occasionally gone low. But this, I will not go this low. Yeah, no, it would serve him. And that would be kind of ironic, wouldn't it? Because I think Comey is destroying himself. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how he serves as a witness in the Mueller investigation when he's trashing everything inside, trashing the president, and giving all these interviews and so on and so on. And, uh, you know, leaking documents, there's all sorts of stuff. He's just, right. it's, it's right. not a, he always comes out being the, you know, the thoughtful, tortured, agonistic fellow here, struggling all the time to do the right thing, surrounded by people of vice while he's a man of virtue. It just gets a little tiresome, you right. know? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I, I don't know. I think this will be, he'll sell a lot of books, at least. He's probably He's probably sold all the books he's going to sell first mm-hmm. week. And then, uh, and then I think it'll taper off. And I don't think he's going to get much of an audience for these interviews. It would be good to see a few interviews really try to drill him on some of these things, some hard questions. But I'm not sure you're going to get them. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Michael Cohen, uh, and I do agree with the conventional wisdom, this is probably more of a threat to President Trump than uh, the Mueller investigation. Um, this was a handoff by the Mueller team to the Southern District of New York. And the worry here is that um, Cohen, Michael Cohen, who's the fixer for the president, uh, I think self-described, in his files there may be documents about Mm -hmm. taxes or bank issues or whatever on which they could uh, try to nail the president. You know, I was interested to listen to this discussion about the $130,000 that he took out from a bank in order to pay off Stormy Daniels. And apparently this was a home equity line, which, according to bank rules, is to be used for home equity. I know lots of people with home equity lines. I'm sure you know people with home equity sure. lines. People take them out to improve their houses. They also take them out to pay off bills, mm-hmm. get a summer vacation. Send a kid to college. Send a kid to college, buy a second car. And I guess, literally, if the feds are breathing down your neck, <laughs> you know, they could say, well, right. you took out a home equity line and you used it for a second car. So you're going to prison. But, you know, I think this would not be not be the right thing. But it bears out the point that I have made over and over again, which is if the feds are after you and they have access to all your records, which they do, and they have unlimited resources, uh, they'll get you. If they yeah. want to get you, they'll get you on something. They'll find something. Unless you've never made a mistake in your income tax return. Not a single one. Right. Know? Well, and then uh, I just heard that um, Michael Cohen was denied access to the seized documents to even look over them himself to see what they actually have. I thought that was in, still in play. Did the judge just decide that? Yeah, I believe she did. Judge Kimball Wood. There you go. Yeah. Uh, check this on your research. Yeah. What does Kimball Wood, Judge Kimball Wood, have in common with Stormy Daniels? I don't know. She was a like a waitress at a Playboy Club. I believe that's <laughs> true. Let's look that up, Claude, before okay. we go on here. Okay. We can let the audience listen <laughs> in here while we're doing this. But I believe Judge Kimball Wood, who is presiding in this uh, in this trial. Now, the other thing that's going on uh, in this um, 
situation is the revelation of the third client. Go ahead. Yeah, your uh, research uh, team just got back to me. Yeah, Judge Kimber Wood is from the New York Daily News. Judge Kimber Wood, uh, federal court in Manhattan since 1988, once nominated as U.S. Attorney General Post, briefly worked at a Playboy casino in 1966. There you go. Okay. I wonder if she and Stormy, you know, sort of I mean, I would exchange, assume sometimes you, know, you run into another money. The same field. I don't mean I'm, I'm not going to despair. She's apparently a very good judge. So. Oh, yeah, no, I'm sure. But that's, it is interesting. Um, okay. So uh, this will have many people scurrying off to their, <laughs> their internets. <laughs> so be it. Um, so be it. But the, the third name, so you have the name of uh, Donald Trump as one client for Michael Cohen. Second is Elliot Broidy, who is a deputy uh chairman of the Republican National Committee finance, of the Republican Finance Committee. His identity was revealed for apparently paying hush money um, that Cohen arranged. And the third name that came out as a client was Sean Hannity. And as we speak, this is shaking the rafters and uh, resounding through the halls. Uh, Sean Hannity was on uh, TV and said, I called Cohen a couple times on some real estate things. There was no third party involved, no third party payoff. Uh, so that um, people shouldn't draw conclusions that it was like Stormy Daniels or the situation with Elliot Brody, another you know, right. And it was entirely different, entirely innocent, and so on. Um, that's being explored as we speak. I don't know what's going to come of that. Um, I know Sean. You know, I'm a Fox News contributor. I've known Sean for a long time. I know him to be a prince of a guy, a really good guy. I have no idea what's involved here. And we shall uh, we shall see. I know if there's gosh knows if there's anything there, we'll sure find yeah. out. If there's nothing there, we'll still hear about it. Yeah, we'll, we'll still. I probably still hear about it if there's, no, <laughs> right. if there's nothing here. Anyway, I, let's put a point on this. Um, there is a lot of stuff brewing and a lot of stuff going on and a lot of noise and a lot of tabloid stuff, a lot of uh, ugly stuff, a lot of accusations, a language in the air. Um, at the same time, you know. North Korea's got nuclear weapons that can reach the United States. China is, uh, you know, about to catch us, maybe pass us mm-hmm. in um, a number of categories. Russia has its daggers pointed at us. Um, uh, you know, the world has got a, a lot of problems. Um, let's not forget uh, the global war against Islamist terror. That's still going on. ISIS has been given sound thrashing here by the U.S. and its allies. But they're not finished. They're not done. There are serious things to worry about. There are serious things to worry about at home. Budgets and budget deficits. And uh, I like the effort to pass a balanced budget amendment, but it seemed a little laughable after this absurd, huge, ridiculous budget that was just uh, signed by the president. I hope we can pay attention to these things. I hope this other stuff will pass. Is there an end to the Mueller investigation? I mean, I... It doesn't hope. seem like it. It doesn't hope. seem like and it. And, of course, there's the prospect of the 2018s. I haven't got my ma- mind around that yet, but I have a feeling. I mean, I-, I think it could depend on what happens in the last three months before the election. The, you know, it's kind of a seesaw. But I notice that the president is not losing ground in terms of popularity polls. Right. He's actually gaining a little. And the big Democrat advantage for 2018 uh, November elections is uh, is narrowing. It's getting much smaller than it was. So that's um, that's that's interesting to me. Just want to add another thing, which has just developed, just come to our attention. 
and I'm sure your attention. I just want to underscore how important it is. Uh, Mike Pompeo, uh, the nominee, the president's nominee for Secretary of State, and at present uh, the director of the CIA, uh, visited uh, North Korea, Pyongyang, we assume, uh, and met with uh, Kim Jong-un. This is extraordinary. We haven't had this kind of face-to-face meeting. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not counting, what's his name, the basketball player I met with him. Oh, yeah, Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman. Who they seem to be infatuated yeah, with. Yeah, we're it's not. Odd, we're, isn't it? we're getting off that as soon as okay. we get on it. Okay, <laughs> Dennis is not Dennis Rodman. This is Mike Pompeo. Truly serious man. And um, as I said, nominee for Secretary of State, this is a amazing diplomatic breakthrough. Why? Let me say a couple things. One, uh, it underscores the... Um, the possibility of a meeting, uh, I, because when Donald Trump talks, there's a discount factor because you know he says what comes in his head and tweets what's in his head and, and makes announcements and then sometimes goes the other way. That's fine. That's okay. It's a different kind of presidency. Uh, and so when he said this, kind of stunned the world, and a lot of people were saying, oh, "I'm not sure this is really ever going to happen." Pompeo going to Pyongyang and meeting with Kim Jong Un. Kim Jong Un going and you know shaking the hand, we assume, of Mike Pompeo huge. It means this meeting with Donald Trump and Pio, uh, and, uh, and Kim Jong-un will probably take place. Um, the second thing it does is it uh, tells you that uh, this is the world's greatest threat, immediate threat right now, to world peace. It's eluded uh, presidents uh, for a long time of both Democrat and Republican stripe. And here Donald Trump may uh, will be addressing it. And uh, who knows? may move this, uh, grab this can and keep it and not kick it down the road and open this can and maybe empty out the worms and, uh, and get, some, uh, get some resolution. Third, this should help Mike Pompeo in his confirmation hearings. Uh, and they look a little perilous right now. Uh, you've got uh, Rand Paul, Republican, saying he won't vote for him. Doesn't like his, quote, warlike tendencies. John McCain, I think, will not vote. Um, if he did, he wouldn't vote for him. Uh, will the Democrats line up? Uh, you know, is, is it going to be a 50-50 vote? Uh, Vice President might break it. I mean, I, that's just too close. I just don't like that. Uh, got to get some Democrats. Got to get some of these red state. Um, got to get some of these red state Democrats. The other thing I'd like to say, and this is just a comment on it, is uh, there's, I, I'm not sure there's anybody I'd prefer seeing Kim Jong-un than Mike Pompeo. I think he's one of the most formidable people in Washington intellectually uh, in terms of presence and intellectually and good cheer and so on. He's a man of goodwill. I think of the Socratic conditions of uh, dialogue, Claude, we used to talk about. Candor, intelligence, and goodwill. He's very candid. He's got exceedingly goodwill. Anybody who watched the hearings could see that. And intelligence, you know, he's got it. Number one in his class at West Point, Harvard Law School, near the top of the class. So, uh, excellent. This was, a, this was a real... I'm looking for a historical analogy. Maybe I'll come up with one. Uh, if I do, I'll get right back to you folks. But if you can think of one, send it to me. Um, Mike Pompeo goes to Pyongyang. Um, Nixon goes to China. Yeah, big, big deal. All right, those are my thoughts. And um, this is the uh, bad season for me. Uh, March Madness is over. College football is over. Watch, yeah. I did. You did. You guys did. You golfer guys did get me. You and Byron York and Mike mm-hmm. Brown and others did get me into the golf thing, the Masters. And you enjoyed watching. You I did. Okay. But now comes the great desert. I mean, the great long, <laughs> you know, well, trough. Well, you've got to get I into the late, NBA playoffs. Late August, you know, right. football. I watched spring football. I was games. going to say, 
Well, there's a lot of teams, a lot of spring games. Maybe tape them or DVR them and then just watch them back. You know? Yeah, that's the thought. Just, uh, yeah. There's something about watching repeats <laughs> that, you know, you get to a certain age in your life, you start to think that if you're watching repeats, you're going through a repeat of your life, which <laughs> suggests you're, the end is nigh. Right. Yeah, I, don't, I don't want to do that. Don't want to do but that. But thanks okay. for the advice. Thanks for the recommendation. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. All right, joining now is Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. I'm laughing because Joel and I were just chatting. I said, what topics should we go with the pre-assigned topics? And he said, whatever topics you want to do, you you know I want to do. Maybe not. You want to talk about Sean Hannity and Stormy Daniels? And I, I mean, they're not linked, but I mean, they're, that's the world in which we live. What is going on here? Do you have a... Give us your uh, professional smart guy, not lawyer layman's opinion here on what's going on. What do you think? Privacy's gone. Um, yeah. we, we've known it. Now we get to see it. We, we have evidence. We see it every day. It's over. Americans used to view ourselves as the unique group that loved liberty and private property rights and free speech. And, and now uh, we're headed in, uh, into an, in an abyss. It's uh, really um, something um, I don't really get. I still don't get how they're able to, you know, go into the records and communications between lawyer and client. I, I guess I understand the notion from, you know, when I was in law school that if they're trying to cover up a crime or something, you can you can break into that relationship. But all three of these clients, uh, you know, uh, the president, uh, Mr. Broidy, uh, Sean Hannity, does, do they have to meet that burden of proof for, for all of them? Or is just this just a blanket approval? Or, you know, it's pretty hard to resist the, the notion that maybe I'm commenting on the obvious. There's just a ton of anti-Trump animus out there. But that aside, does it permeate and break into the legal system and the prosecutorial system and the... Uh, judicial referral system? Our Bill of Rights uh, turned into the first amendments to the Constitution. Six of the ten amendments to the Constitution in some way or another dealt with property rights, privacy. And yeah, that's right. Now, now right. you know, we, we, we hear about Russia, China, others who are invading, hacking, attacking our privacy through social media and, and the Internet. Now I guess if you're uh, if you're a business person or if you're just a, a, a any any American citizen who wants to hire a lawyer, you have to go make sure that your lawyer is uh, is not being secretly investigated. I guess it's a new set of due diligence you have to do if you're going to engage an attorney in the United States. That's interesting. So it's not just the lawyer taking a look at the client, but uh, the client has to take a look at the lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Uh, I guess. Uh, I'm not sure which. Uh, which amendment uh, I'm referring to, but there was one about due process and innocent until proven guilty. Uh, I, I think that's we can probably rip that out of the textbooks now that we learn. Is this anti Trump? Is this uh, anti Trump animus? Just uh... yes, uh, it's it, we we have we have proven uh, in the United States that if you dislike someone or you have such disdain for someone, um, you pretty much have free reign, carte blanche to do whatever you want to do. To attack them. Record of the FBI here isn't very good, is it? Those uh, those people in business have known for for decades that the FBI is not what 
we expected it to be. Now we're just seeing it. Uh, the, the, the political class is now seeing what the business business really? community has known for years. Really? Yeah. Business community has known this for years. You're part of the business community. Really? What kinds of things uh, did, did, did you or other members of the business community see that gave rise to this conclusion? Thankfully, nothing I've ever been involved with. But uh, when you're in business, you are in communication with people who, uh, at one one in one form or another, have had dealings with um, the SEC, the FBI, or a federal agency. And it is well known that when a federal agency decides to have a conversation with you or pursue some line of evidence, that you end up spending the next four to six to seven years of your life, personal life, and your business life responding. Um, Their capital is limitless. Their time is limitless. And it becomes irrelevant if the resolution is in your favor or not. The headlines that some people in the business community have to read or their friends are, so-and-so is being investigated for such-and-such, and And that goes on interminably. It's a long-standing joke uh, when when, when these people are acquitted. It's in page 27 in the bottom right corner with three sentences. Where do do I go to get my reputation back, Gray Donovan said uh, years ago. Yes. Yes. It's nothing more than a tactic. And when one party, you know, to put it more simply, uh, get it away from the FBI for a moment or, or, or federal agencies, if a very large company, this is what most people, in, uh, you know, consumers understand, a very large company is working with an extremely small company. Everyone knows the large company has the advantage. Everybody knows that. The small company can't. What small technology company can compete with Microsoft? What, do, what small retailer can compete with compete with Amazon or Walmart. Everyone knows the small guy can't compete with the big guy. So why is that any different with an agency with almost complete power? It's not. It's it's obvious it's not. What about this phrase that's uh, thrown around a lot? And I think it's the real truth to it. My former professor uh, at Harvard Law School, Alan Dershowitz, says it a lot. Criminalization of political differences. That's really what's going on, isn't it? We not only disagree, but for your disagreement, I will label you a criminal. And to the degree uh, that I have the, uh, you know, the the instruments of government at my disposal, I will go after you criminally. He's correct, obviously, but it's 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 more insidious. All you need to do is allege someone is a criminal. Yeah, sure. You don't have to prove it. Yeah. You allege it. You report on it. And that's, you know, it's almost like, you know, the media today, the way they kind of report these instances, these news, these allegations, it would be, it's like, it reminds me of, of a sports reporter. It, like last year, we just had the Super Bowl. Uh, Philadelphia and New England played the Super Bowl. It would be like a reporter saying, New England scored 33 points. Tom Brady threw three touchdowns. Nick Foles threw an interception. And that's the report. Well, obviously, there's a few other items that you need to know about the Super Bowl. Number one is Philadelphia won the game. Yeah. But that's how our media reports allegations today. Yeah, and that headline, the winning headlines on page 17, right in the corner, yeah. Yes. That's your point. Well, I said, and I was uh, saying earlier before you came on, and that's a theme I've noticed. I I learned this from Robert Novak. Remember Bob Novak? Yes, 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 uh, yes. And he and I got to be pretty close, and he... uh, I remember at breakfast once he said, 
just don't get the federal government after you. Because if they come after you, as you said, unlimited resources, unlimited money, unlimited time, and they'll get you on something. You know, you file income tax returns, you fill out reports of various kinds, you, 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 you do a census, you know, they'll get you. I would say one, one, one caveat to that. In many cases, they don't get you. You win. But you've spent the six yeah. years and yeah. all your resources yeah, defending yourself. And furthermore, who in the world is going to work with you in business? Every 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 time that you're trying to work with another company or a lender or someone, you're you're filling out a disclosure form. And one of the questions that's always asked is: Is there any pending or threatened litigation? Yeah, right. Well, obviously, if the answer is yes, guess what? They're not working with you. Yeah, yeah. they don't even have to win. Yeah. That's right. And in the age of the Internet, that's permanent, too, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. There's a thing called the Nexus-Lexus search. Yeah, sure. And there's more, but uh, that's the age we're in. So Professor Dershowitz was right. Yeah. Um, uh, but we don't even have to criminalize it anymore. We just have to allege. All right, let's go on. Uh, let's go to a happier topic, Syria. Well, <laughs> yeah, thank you. That was a joke. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. You know, we talked uh, to our mutual friend, Brian Kennedy, about this last week. He wasn't so sure about this. I wasn't so sure either. Brian said, well, you know, a, good, a symbolic attack here, um, you know, making it, making it plain that we don't approve of this. Um, I don't know. I don't know what we accomplished, if we accomplished. I know that one of the people I respect on this, oddly enough, a very left-wing guy named Stephen Cohen, who's a professor at NYU in Princeton, but I think knows more about Russia than anybody, said, uh, I heard him on, actually on Tucker Carlson's show, so another conservative has some appreciation for him, said he was more worried about this, at that point, imminent attack with the Russians than anything since, um, even more than the Bay of Pigs and the missile, missile crisis and so on. Uh, now, it didn't happen because we didn't disturb any much, I guess. Uh, I don't know whether people had warnings, but I'm not sure anybody was killed or hurt. A few facilities were damaged uh, that uh, make this stuff. But we didn't uh, destroy the capacity to make this stuff forever or even maybe in the long run. Um, I don't know. Um, I always think, and I know it, you know, a, 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 an aphorism is not a application, but uh, Hamilton said when the United States goes to war or exercises its, its, its military muscle, it should go like Hercules. You know, don't mess around. Uh, was this messing around? Was the mission accomplished? Am I missing something? You're not missing anything, nor is Brian, nor are the others commenting on it. I, I, we, we always need to start with, what is our objective? I understand chemical weapons are are awful. They're just they, they, there should be there's no place for them in the world. It's it's heartbreaking. If the object is to stop the production and use of chemical weapons, bombing places in Syria probably aren't going to stop that. And we don't even know if when we bombed these locations that the the chemical weapons weren't moved. We, there's so much we do not know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, starting with what is our objective? Um, if our objective is is grander, is broader, which is you know Russian influence and interference in this conflict, there's a lot better ways of dealing with that than there is um, uh, bombing a, a few facilities. Uh, we so, sometimes the United States doesn't even know if we are in a war. Um, 
The war in Syria is pretty obvious. Uh, You know, our conflict with China and Russia, not so obvious. But uh, we need to start with, uh, are, are we in a conflict? And if we are, yeah, let's do something about it and let's do it significantly. Yeah. Yeah, I don't see it as part of a broader strategy. Now, another way to look at this, which is that doesn't make me feel any better, Joel, is uh, think of this as on the world stage, which, of course, it is. Everything we do is a prequel to the sit down talks with North Korea. So if I'm Kim Jong Un, I'm, you know, I'm not so sure that this puts the fear of God into me. (laughs) Um, Understatement. (laughs) Understatement. Correct. Um, again, what is our objective? Uh, we just got through saying it was chemical weapons being used by Syria. If it is a broader strategy, and if the broader strategy is North Korea, not Russia or China, but North Korea, then let's do something about that more significantly, too. Uh, it, it, the last few months, it looked like uh, President Trump was doing a pretty good job with his North Korean strategy. And, and you make a good point. Did what we just do uh, last week, did that help our our cause, our, our, our greater cause, or did it hurt it? I, I, don't, I don't know that it helped, because um, I, I keep hearing and reading and listening to a lot more questions as to what we were doing and what was there and how long it was there and who was using it than answers. And that's kind of a typical strategy if someone doesn't like the president. You know, it's a complex issue. So a great strategy for people who don't like the president is to take a very complex issue, say, um, look what he did. He, 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 he launched some bombs. And it was too simplistic, and he hasn't thought it through. And therefore, um, his reaction to something complex is too simplistic and doesn't work, and therefore he's yeah. bad. Yeah. He, that kind of uh, rhetoric against what the president is trying to do is not helpful to his cause. I understand. All right, let's do. Let's go to something which I think is uh, quite positive for the president. It's actually similar to the first topic you and I ever talked about on this podcast, which is uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Um, on the world stage, if we look at uh, you know the accusations against President Trump, you know protectionist uh, Madeleine Albright has a book out yeah, yeah. calling about fascism, uh, trade wars with China. Uh, disliked by our allies, the whole protectionist thing and America first thing. Nevertheless, as you uh, told us and taught us months ago, there are some serious examples of allies doing exactly or various things very much like what Donald Trump is doing. Take us through France and Canada and Germany as they imitate our president. Listening to uh, Secretary Albright, you would think that uh, that our fascist president is the, the, the epitome of of totalitarian authority, authoritarian control, um, and and we'll we'll talk about that silly silly comment later. But France um, is an interesting example. For the this is not something; these are not one-off circumstances. France has, and, and President Macron and his Prime Minister uh, Philippe Eduardo Philippe have made a conscious, vigilant effort to dismantle the, the, the problems of, of, of confiscatory labor laws and, and, and get an economy which is stagnant and an employment rate which is in excess of 10 percent. 
back on track. This is something that is they they ran on with their election, and and since they've been elected, they have been pursuing legislatively change for their country. Now, here we are today. The most recent example is, and people need to realize, more than fifty-five percent of the employees in France are public employees. Say that again. Um, Say that again. More than 55% of the employees in France are public employees. Well, what is it in the U.S., do you know? Uh, off the top of my head, I don't. It's not that. It's substantial. Although we're, we're trying to catch up. Uh, some of the president's opponents uh, and, on our, and our last president said, this is, this is who we are. We need to do more of this. But um, we're not over what? 55%. Now, what is the French reaction? Riots? and strikes in the street. Can you imagine if President Trump proposed some legislation, and we actually, I think some uh, some members of The View thought it would be interesting to watch, but if we had riots and strikes because of trying to uh, relax extreme regulations on, on labor laws. Well, that's what President Macron is doing now. And he's doing it because he said the status quo, his prime minister, Philippe, said the status quo cannot continue. Huh. It's, it's unsustainable. Huh. And he's risking his entire administration on changing something that has been really decimating the French economy. That's a really bold, admirable move by an elected official of the second one of the top second or third largest economies in the European Union. That's one example of okay. of one of our allies. Okay. We we typically like the, we typically hear we typically hear that Macron hates and dislikes and disdains President Trump and there's nothing right. Trump does that, that that's the kind of stuff we hear. But we need to look at what he's doing. That's that's an example. Okay, good. What what about uh, Canada? Because I had not did not know about this uh, parallel to uh, our pipeline debate uh, that going on in Canada. It's a um, it's a pipeline debate in Canada. It's also uh, I've probably heard this phrase before a looming constitutional crisis in Canada. You have two provinces uh, run by two premiers, Alberta, which is heavily uh, oil and gas dependent. And British Columbia, which is on the coast, we have a we have a state, a few states on the coast too, on, on the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so um, Alberta has been trying to. First of all, we we denied access to a Keystone Pipeline in America, but Canada was also simultaneously pursuing what's called the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which takes oil and gas from Alberta west through British Columbia to the ports, so they can sell. Canada can sell their huge energy uh, reserves around the world, in particular to Asia. British Columbia has basically, the premier of British Columbia, a fellow by the name of Horgan, has said, I will do everything I can to protect and defend British Columbia from Alberta and, and this, this scourge of, of oil and gas. We also had, uh, uh, Canada also had uh, the Prime Minister Trudeau, who was uh, criticizing uh, the United States for backing out of the Paris Climate Accords and you know all of these all of these provinces, the Alberta and British Columbia and Canada, are really supported in their their system by the Green Party. So they're all basically have historic
historically said, no oil, no gas, no way. Well, now they've realized all of them, them, Alberta, Trudeau, and British Columbia, that the Canadian economy is dying. And we now have a situation where Alberta has, they've actually introduced legislation to cease or uh, delivering oil and gas to British Columbia. The Prime Minister of Canada has spent the last month going between British Columbia and Alberta to figure out how to deal with this situation. And he has now finally said the Canadian government will not only support the construction of this pipeline, but they will also invest in it. They will actually help pay for it to make sure this pipeline gets built. Wow! So now you have wow. British Columbia basically saying, we're going to go to war, quote, war with you legally, that you don't have the right. The federal government does not have the right to do this. They don't have the right to build, uh, you know, infrastructure needed by the nation. Uh, I, I guess it's, it's not a wall, but it's a pipeline. But the British Columbia is saying the federal government does not have this right. Alberta says we need this. And furthermore, if we don't get it, we're going to with we potentially are going to withhold energy to this province. It is the darndest thing I've ever witnessed. And, you know, 60 days ago, all we heard from the Canadian prime minister is that the focus in the world needs to be getting rid of fossil fuels. Now we have one of the most interesting legal constitutional issues that the Western Hemisphere has witnessed in a long time. I heard you right. He's opposed to the Environmental Coalition, correct? Well, <laughs> yes or no? He, he's trying to get it built, right? He's trying to get it built. He absolutely. He's not only. He's not only trying to get it built. He is threatening federal action to get it built and promising federal money to participate in paying for it. Okay. And which is interesting because it wasn't so long ago that he, the same prime minister was, was saying that, uh, you know, we got to get rid of oil and gas. Right, sure. So save, now he's on the other the side planet. from his uh, lefty environmentalist friends. He is on the absolute other side. And even the premier of Alberta had got elected through uh, the Green Party also, but Alberta is, is, is their economy is in such shambles that even the, uh, the socialist Green Party coalition of Alberta's uh, leader has to support it. And the wow. British Columbia, wow. obviously, is opposing it. Wow, wow, um, wow. We, we, have a, we have a few examples of the so federal amazing. government saying we want to have an infrastructure project built and a particular state or province saying, eh, we don't necessarily support it and we'll fight it. That's amazing. But that's what's going on uh, just to our, our, just to the north of us. You, where do you get your news, Joel? You always uh, uncork these things that I don't see anywhere. You must have some special news feed coming into you. Um, uh, I'll tell you where I try not to get it from is the American oh, okay. uh, uh, media. Right. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. <laughs> guilty. 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 <laughs> There, there's other there's other reporters in this world that report on issues that matter to them. Are they fair and balanced? Uh, no, <laughs> no, they're <laughs> okay. not. All right, that's good too. That's good too. All right, let's go to Germany uh, and China trade. What about that? Is China? Doing, so, I mean, is Germany doing something that uh, complements C O M P L E? What uh, Donald Trump is uh, about? Well, uh, Germany is is worried like. President Trump, extremely worried. Um, Germany has, you know, President Trump basically has been accused of initiating a trade war with China. 
He hasn't initiated a trade war. First of all, China knew they were in a war. The United States didn't even know there was a war. Yeah. All President Trump yeah. has done was respond to attacks by China. Good. Right. That's what he's done. That's right. It's not, he has not right. initiated any trade war. That's right. Um, Germany has been in China probably longer than, than most countries. Um, an example, there's a, a very sophisticated uh, technology, a manufacturing company, a company called A.G. Bauer, B-A-U-E-R. They've been in, in China since the 1990s. They build sophisticated drilling equipment for big projects, airports and ports and all kinds of uh, you know, skyscrapers. Uh, A.G. Bauer went to China. They were the only, one of the only co- companies in the world that did what they did. Today, because of intellectual property theft, because of the Chinese government um, listening in on their private virtue uh, uh, communications with the companies, because of other companies that China joint ventured with who were suppliers of Bauer with some of their technology, China taking, you know, buying that technology and using it and copying it. Through all kinds of ways that President Trump has complained that China is violating our agreements, the China, China has 36 companies that can do what A.G. Bauer used to be the only company in the oh, world that wow. did it. Yeah. The entire country of Germany is currently rethinking their future in terms of trade at all with China. We don't. You're a fellow that you've had on your your, your show many times, uh, Gordon Chang. He has said that if you have no intellectual property protection and your business is intellectual property, you have no business. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, intellectual property is a is a current current thing that we have today because of technology. But I mentioned earlier. Uh, six of the first ten amendments of the Constitution Constitution had to do with right. private property right. rights. Right. Right. It's just a different kind of property. Germany just recently, to, to just kind of put uh, an exclamation point to how seriously this, they're taking, the country's taking this, Germany just recently publicly told China, uh, lambasted China for using social media to attack German politicians in their re-election campaign, huh. basically hacking. Uh, I've heard this before. How about this? <laughs> How about this? Wow. And, yeah. And and they are now, uh, they're now looking, they now have seminars and they, all, they have uh, these think, the German think tanks and, and research institutes are actually posing the question, within 10 years, will China basically decimate culturally and economically Germany? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Germany... Germany does not have a trade imbalance like the United States uh-huh. does with China. Uh-huh. It's about even. So they have a lot of money invested that they can't only they can't really say much because they're so connected right now. But they also recognize their future is in peril. Okay. What President Trump is saying and doing yeah. is what every one of our allies around the world are thinking. Okay. I just want to pick up on that last sentence. What he's doing is what they're thinking. And go to one other topic quickly, because we're running out of time. Yes. But it seems to me, and you've heard me on this before, because you and I have talked about immigration, sovereignty. What does it mean to be a, you know, a sovereign nation? A lot of the world, particularly Europe, is thinking these Trumpian thoughts, maybe not giving voice to it, about immigration as well, right? Opening the floodgates in Germany, in Scandinavia, yes. and so on. 
And we know a lot of the people and their politicians are raising these flags. But even some of the leadership is now starting to say, whoa. You know, and no, France and Italy okay, okay, and Hungary okay, good, good, and good, good. almost every Western and Eastern European country. Um, okay. you know, Italy, is, their, their border is the Mediterranean Sea. They have the Navy that patrols the sea. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The imitation there. Not in, not in deed yet so much, but certainly in thought, certainly in recognition. I think this recognition is is taking over. Can, can we switch topics just to, to end here? Because we, yes. got, we got a lot of mail about, as people refer to him, that California guy, that California expert. <laughs> That's you. So I just wondered if you saw the proposal by, you may know the guy, Draper, is that his name, uh, to, to yeah, divide yeah. California into three states? I, I thought secession was where you guys were going, but apparently now uh, Draper, who's what, a very successful venture capitalist or something, uh, is, yes. is talking about dividing it up in three states. Now, the first thing I thought of was Boxer and Feinstein times three. <laughs> but I guess... And that's, yeah, that's a concern. That's a concern. It, you know, it, our, the conservatives in California are not the conservatives that you are familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> but that that is a concern. But um, I think, well, this has been going on for more, well more than a year in terms of getting petition, uh, getting signatures and figuring out the way to do all this. Obviously, secession is almost impossible. Uh, this is slightly less than impossible. But I'll tell you what it does, the message it sends uh, and you see it. You also see it with um, you know, the homelessness crisis and all these other things that's going on in California. A lot of the cities are. A lot of the cities are absolutely fighting back against the state government. Um, this is just taking it to another level in terms of the counties and the regions fighting uh, fighting back against the state government. There's a. We're going to see a lot of a lot of new uh, proposals in terms of how do people, how do conservatives, or how do moderates, how do the middle class, mainly the middle class, how does the middle class have a voice in this state? Because right now, one thing we know, and there's only one thing we absolutely unassailably know. The middle class in California has no voice, and they are leaving. And this is a, a, a last attempt. Not, maybe not. Maybe it's too dramatic, but it's a. It's close to a last attempt to save the, the middle class from departing and, and abandoning the state. Okay. Uh, do either of these proposals make any sense? Uh, secession, you can't do. We had fought a civil war over that. I suppose you could do the state into three states, uh, though it's very, My, I, very complicated. I, 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 this isn't this isn't I, the answer. I'm not a fan of those kinds of uh, reactions. This is this I, is Tim Draper, right? Tim Draper. Yes, yeah, I okay. believe so. Yeah, okay. I'm a fan of better ideas. Yeah, it's not a bad. I, idea. I like better ideas. And well, you How know, about two senators the, from Orange County, that might not be a bad idea. <laughs> That's a very good idea, okay. <laughs> Senator Farkas. <laughs> I I love I love the defense of liberty for. Crying out loud for what, crying what? out loud. I, that's it. There's one. Let's remember that. Let's remember that, uh, Claude. I love the defense of liberty for crying out loud. Okay, we're going to remember I, that. That's going to uh, be your trademark. There's a. <laughs> a uh, France has a. France has an, a, a professor at, at Berkeley of all places who uh, who is describing his uh, his countrymen, and he said we 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 prefer much more. We prefer in France. Uh, pursuit of equality much more than liberty. Uh, now, 
I don't mind equality. The United States is, uh, you know, has a has a history of both uh, equal protection and, and equal rights, but we also used to just defend and, and the liberty. Liberty was was what made us unique and distinct. Yeah. And even even our allies overseas in Europe who don't do this recognize that. Give me political correctness or give me death. Oh, no, that's, <laughs> that's, we'll, we'll end there, but I like yours. I'm giving Claude instruction on air to you and to our audience. Every time we introduce this man, we're going to say, here is Joel. I love liberty for crying out loud, Farkas. I'll take it. Thank you, Joel. I've been described worse. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. Thank you for your time and thought. And thanks for keeping up on these things in the rest of the world, really. We, we don't know about them uh, until you tell us about them. We don't know about them. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, Bill. Okay, bye-bye. All right, that was Joel Farkas, director of the American Strategy Group. As I mentioned before, I'm a fellow of the American Strategy Group here in Washington. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Let's change direction and talk a little bit of education. On the occasion of the 35th anniversary of A Nation at Risk, I had a chance to sit and speak with the current Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. We talked about American education and the most recent NAEP scores, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which we had talked about last week with Jack Finn. Let's take a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to introduce Secretary Betsy DeVos and Secretary William J. Bennett. Thank you, and all the best. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And <laughs> about you, this used to happen to me at universities. I'd be introduced by the president, and then he'd leave. Um, I don't know why, but anyway. Uh, if you see me limping, I'm limping. It's not because of old age. It's because of torn cartilage. Quick story. We had three black labs in a row. When we went to buy our fourth, people who uh, sell us the dogs said, get a golden one, a yellow one. You'll see him better at night. You won't trip over. (laughs) I tripped over him (laughs) at one o'clock in the afternoon. So (laughs) some things. Anyway, I'm limping a little bit, but still able to take a bruise and occasionally give a bruise. Betsy, how do you like the job? I like the job a lot. You do. On most days. Yeah. I do. No, it's, it's, uh, it's a privilege to serve, and uh, any time I have a moment of question, all I have to do is picture one of the students that I've had the opportunity to interact with that maybe helped ultimately, and that, that sets it all straight. Do you find, as I did, that uh, actually what you just said, visiting the schools, talking to the students, no substitute for that? No substitute for that. Reading the reports is, is interesting, but... Seeing the kids and seeing the works. Right, right. Seeing the possibility. What are the hardest parts? Uh, I think the hardest challenge is um, trying to help people understand how much we need to change. And we know that the forces of the status quo don't want to do that. And yet, um, you know, we're going to talk about some of the NAEP results this week. Uh, we, We know that the way we've done things simply isn't working for too many students, for too many kids, and we need to see things done differently. We need a lot more creativity. Okay. Let's talk about what those things might be in a minute, but let's uh, first describe the NAEP scores, uh, the nation's report card. What do we see? 
Well, I, I, I'd like to first, you know, also reference um, what we are convened around today, and that is the recognizing the 35th anniversary of a nation, nation at, at risk, risk report, right. and, um, and and say we are still a nation at risk, and I would say at even greater risk today when we think of the uh, many different technological changes and advancements in every other area of society. And today it is, I believe, both a national security risk and interest, and it's certainly our economic future that is at stake. And if you look at the past, um, you know, since NAEP was started here, the, the screen up on the board shows you there's really been overall about a 2% change in fourth grade reading results in all of the years since NAEP was, uh, was begun. Um, and it, it just points to stag- stagnation. And if you look at then uh, the commensurate spending, per pupil spending, it's gone up since the nation at risk was was put forward um, 75% in 2016 dollars, 75%. And if you look at those together, uh, you see quite a divergence. Um, Scores continuing to muddle along, unremarkable as... uh, was stated many different places this week, and, and yet look at the, the spending. Um, this is not something we're going to spend our way out of, and it's not something we're going to mandate or regulate our way out of. Uh, there is some good news, though, right? If we disaggregate the data, if we break it down, there are some places uh, that this uh, last uh, NAEP 2017 <laughs> suggested knew what they were doing or, or, or even more knew a great deal about what they were doing and, and were improving. Yeah, I, I would um, really want to highlight Florida, which began very comprehensive reform efforts in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s. And in 1998, they ranked 47th to 49th in all the NAEP scores. And um, they, under the leadership of uh, former Governor Bush, really were intentional about looking at student-centered reforms that would make a difference. So you look at the fact that they introduced transparency for parents to know how the schools are doing, an A through F grading system. They introduced a lot more uh, flexibility at the local level, giving and empowering school leadership to try things and do things differently. Um, They they, they went after and, and really improved teacher certification efforts and gave uh, different pathways to become certified as teachers. They um, implemented a third-grade reading requirement, knowing that if students aren't reading by the time they exit third grade, it's a really rough road ahead, um, learning to read versus reading to learn. And they uh, introduced the most rigorous or the most generous and broad merit pay system for teachers. And then they also introduced a a number of choices, including a tax credit scholarship program, um, a couple of programs targeted at uh, special needs students. And these reforms have borne out. Um, They now are fifth and eighth in fourth fourth, uh, grade NAEP scores. And it's really attributable, I think, to this concerted effort to tackle um, reforms on a student-focused, student-centered basis and do what's right for kids. So today in Florida, 46% of students choose schools other than their assigned school, and that doesn't even account for the percentage of families that move to a place 
and, and pay whatever the real estate market requires to live there. So the vast majority of students in Florida are in schools and in, in uh, education environments of their parents' choosing. And I think this is a model for other states to look at and emulate, and it's, it, I, I hope that uh, you know, other states are going to look at all of the ways Florida has gone after this and continued to go after this. Yeah, I want to pick up on that continued because uh, as we learned from as we learned over and over again from the education of children, young children, it's fine to do good preschool stuff, but you need consistency because those things can wash away. They can just disappear. But over time, the reinforcement of the same things can make a difference. And Jeb Bush, not so long ago, but some time ago, and yet Florida has been consistent in its emphasis, I think, from Governor Bush, Governor Scott, uh, and they have stayed with it. The second thing, and please comment on that if you want, but the second thing I wanted to mention is if we draw down a little deeper, dive down a little deeper, individual cities and communities in Florida, about which the NAEP told us as well, have done particularly well, correct? Yes, there were three um, TUDAs that participated in that right. uh, voluntary study, and all of those urban areas showed improvements. I think importantly, too, the, um, the results for Florida's NAEPs um, demonstrated that not only students at the top end of the performance scale, but those at the bottom end of the performance scale right. improved. And we, we saw some improvements for those at the top end in other states, but Florida is really the only place where you saw improvement with those that really need the most help. And, again, I would argue it's because they really have been uh, very intentional about these student-centered reforms, and they've stuck with them, and they've continued to improve on them and iterate and have acknowledged that this is not a destination, that they have to continue to make changes and try new things and do things differently right. for students to, to be right. able to succeed. And, and Miami's one of those places, right? So it that is. If the kids are doing well in Miami, then arguably, like the lyric goes to New York, New York, you can make it anywhere. If the kids in Miami can be brought up to that level of achievement, one would think you could do it elsewhere right. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do we do then? I remember one of the first public. You, you're so right about the continuum here. Um, I, I was saying these a lot of these things in the 80s, said them in the 90s, the same things remain true. One of the publications we put out back then was called What Works. So it would seem, from what you're saying, Florida has some idea of what works, and it's doing it, hasn't forgotten, and it's continued to do the same thing. How do we get other states to do what works? Because if you look at those scores again, you look across the board, a lot of states flat, some down. Is, why won't, why won't, if you have a development in medicine, you know, other doctors will do the same thing. They'll do it in other states. Is there a jealousy? Is there a pride of place? Why not say, let's go to Florida and figure out what they're doing? Well, I hope that other governors and legislators will do that and will take notice of these results. Um, But we know that the forces of the status quo are very strong, and change is hard. But what we are doing simply is not right for too many students, and it's not acceptable, and we shouldn't stand for it. You know, we just came in fourth in the Winter Olympics, and I heard people outraged about this. Well, I don't hear the same kind of outrage about the fact that we're 40th in the world in math. Yeah. Why is that? 
we, we should we should be outraged. We should continue to say this is not acceptable. We need change, but it needs to happen primarily at the state and the local level because it's not a one-size-fits-all solution, and there shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all approach. Yeah, but but there are things to be learned, and I mean there is a state of the art. There are things that we know, and there are yeah. things that we know that that uh, that work. I remember with the success of, uh, you remember the great Jaime Escalante, the stand and deliver, the math teacher, calculus teacher in California. And I remember when I went out and visited him, I saw his principal first. And I said, this must be the most popular guy in the school. And he said, no, he's not. He's very popular with parents and kids, but not with some of the other teachers. And I said, why not? Well, because he gets these great achievement levels with his kids and they don't. He teaches calculus and they don't know how. Well, there's something, there's something wrong there, right? There's something definitely wrong. Indeed, indeed. I, 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 want, I wanted to say something about just a, a bit of a plug because of the state-to-state comparison and learning state-to-state. This organization I'm with, Conservative Leaders for Education, we talk with a group of people. Frankly, I didn't spend nearly as much time as I should have when I was secretary. These state legislators, state legislators who have a vision, who have ideas of things to do, and we get them together, and they're from many different states. We have about 20 members now to compare notes on what's successful. So to try to regularize this notion of finding out what works and seeing if it's replicable in another place. And I, and I salute you for doing that and encourage you to keep it up because you're right, state uh, legislative leadership can make a huge difference. And um, I urge and encourage them to not only uh, take you – know, I think a lot of them feel like, okay, if we do the third-grade reading component, we can check the box and we're going to get change. It, it's it's got to right. be a whole lot more than that. It right. really does have to be a comprehensive approach to um, – making the framework such that the results are going to be different from from every local community and from every school building, but allowing the kind of creativity and innovation that needs to happen at that local level, putting that framework together at the state level is is really critical to that. And there are some states that are down the road toward that, but they haven't been, I don't think, any of them as comprehensive as Florida has been. Yeah, I did notice, uh, because I've spent some time there and spent some time with the governor, Arizona, Doug Ducey, uh, they were flat this year, but I think they had made... Pr- the previous years, they've... Previous two or three improvements. And yeah. particularly, I know area of special interest for you is in the whole charter area. Their charter schools are just scoring off the... Off the shooting the lights out. They're just doing very, very well. I know some people have criticized, it's interesting, have criticized Arizona for being the Wild West here in education. But they're trying different things, and I think most important, they're trying to measure what happens as a result of trying different right. things. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I have visited a number of traditional public schools that are taking different approaches. One of them in uh, Casper, Wyoming, a very, you know, unsuspecting place, where for 25 years the school, the elementary school I visited, has been totally student or uh, teacher-directed. And just within the last two or three years they've switched to a um, – uh, a competency mastery-based approach, so they have multi-age classrooms, and you know the, the the lines are very blurred between grades. And within that district in Casper, um, parents have the choice of sending their child to any of the elementary schools. And so the parents and the students I met there are very thrilled with that 
approach, and the students are very happy. They're, they're thriving at that school. So they've done something different outside of the norm. Um, another school I visited in Indiana, Cold the school in the Indianapolis district, and um, the teachers and the leadership there have totally reorganized and done things the way they wanted to set them up, and um, and the students, as a result, are, are doing, they've gone from an F to an A school in a matter of a year and a half or two years, and um, yeah. they were telling me that, that you know, they realized they needed a Saturday, Saturday program for some of the students, and within a month, they had it up and running. Well, if they were still doing asking permission of the you know the next sure. level of command, they would have been still waiting. Sure. So these things can be done. It just takes the will to do them. And your visits are no small thing either. I know. And believe me, it'll last. People come up to me and say, "You visited my school when I was in the fourth grade." I remember because <laughs> you had those bodyguards with you. Anyway, that's what the, <laughs> that's what the little kids remember. But uh, that can be a very big thing. I remember. Ronald Reagan, considering the auspices here, which we are present, uh, they called the White House called up and said, Ronald, the president wants to visit a school. So he went over here and visited Suitland High School. And the president got up and talked for a while, and then a bell rang. And the president, you know, very mindful of his truancy when he was a boy, said, I guess I better stop because I'm going <laughs> to change classes. I could go on. And I said to the principal, the president could go on. And the president said, well, I don't want to interfere with math or civics or something, I said, Mr. President, this is a pretty good civics class right here. Very good civics you know? class. So he right. went on uh, for, another, awesome. for another hour. Really, it really was awesome. Let's, let's shift gears because you, know, you talked about headlines, the Olympics, education. Some things that do make the headlines are in another part of your uh, work, and that's in higher ed. We hear about Title IX. We hear about student loan business. We hear about uh, things that are very deep, very significant, very important, very expensive. Higher ed, I found, um, I didn't know it when I started, that in some ways I had more leverage on some of the higher education issues than in the elementary and secondary. Well, and, and uh, you know, the whole question of what is higher ed, I yep, think, is a correct. really relevant one today. And, and what's it for? Yeah. Yeah. What is it for? And, um, you know, I, I've said before that I think for too long we have given the subtle or sent the subtle or not so subtle message that the only way to succeed as an adult is to go to a four-year college or university. And yet today we have over 6 million jobs that require some level of education beyond high school that are going unfilled. We don't have a good way currently to help direct students, to expose them to these opportunities. And um, as Congress considers reauthorizing the Higher Education Act, one which was, of course, passed in 1965, just a few things have changed since then, I think it would behoove them to take a couple steps back and say, what is the role of the federal government in supporting education beyond high school? And it, we, we need to take down the silos that have, have artificially grown up between career and technical education and traditional four-year, right. because they're really getting blurred in the marketplace today, and yet we, we insist on keeping them uh, pretty siloed in, in this town. Um, I've visited some a number of really innovative high schools that are exposing students as early as junior high to a multitude of pathways. Just last week, I was in uh, the Dallas area at Birdville. Uh, it's a career and technical high school that has, I think it was about 25 different 
pathways that students could pursue. Now, many of these students will ultimately go on to a four-year college or university, but many of them will come out of this high school with certifications ready to go into a good, high-paying job immediately. Well, those kinds of things need to be more, pro, you know, prolific and proliferated and available to more and more students. McMinnville High School in Oregon I visited as well, another really intentional um, program that is is uh, introducing kids to a wide variety of opportunities to pursue both dual, you know, dual credit, dual enrollment, so they come out with some of them with associate's degrees or come out prepared to go into the next step. But I think we need to be looking at learning as really a lifelong pursuit. Yeah, uh, so a philosopher education said it's not enough for a man to be good. He's got to be good for something. And I wonder if we have been guilty, maybe myself, with a Ph.D. in philosophy, of thinking of education as the liberal arts, uh, the humanities and social sciences, and looking down our nose at, at people who know how to do things, who work with their hands, uh, and you can't uh, export that. You can't uh, send that overseas. And that's where a lot of these jobs are, correct? And we can do, we can do both, right? I mean, we can, we can have literacy, we can have numeracy, and we can teach people uh, different things. But I think there has been a built-in bias um, against the practical, if you will. Mm-hmm. No, that is the, that is that has been the case. But I think that um, you know we have to acknowledge there are fewer and fewer traditional higher ed students today, yeah. and that over the course of uh, the lifetime of someone who's in kindergarten today, they can look forward to you know a dozen or more different careers in their lifetime. Right, 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 right. When you talk to new in your life, you have done so many things. You've, one of the things you've, you've interacted with the corporate community, and now you're interacting with the corporate community in a different way. When you meet with CEOs, I'm thinking of what Ann said about the intersection of labor and education, what is it that people um, in the corporate world tell you they want from American schools that they're not getting? Well, I think there are some, there are some core competencies that um, – would it would it would behoove all students to learn and it would behoove all education institutions to focus on and i'm not sure that that's been part of the um, narrative until lately and you know being able to communicate well um, being able to collaborate and work well with others to think critically and um, and to be you know to foster creativity and I think about, I think back to my own experience in school and um, also observe students today who, you know, kids are creative when they're little toddlers and, and uh, very young. And I, f- I fear that all too often we, we try to sort of fit them in boxes and make them um, conform to something that they're not. And by the time that they're in, you know, late elementary school or middle school, a lot of that creativity has yeah. uh, been really, really, you know, tamped down in a big way. Right. I've talked to people, employers, who've told me, somebody heard me give remarks, he said, I, you may hear it sound as if you want the schools to teach what it is we do at this company. He said, I don't want you to do that. He said, just give me a workforce of people with a good attitude, show up on show up time, on time. Yeah. basically literate, communicate, can get along with other people. And lately I've been hearing, don't, I don't have an attitude problem about work. Uh, I mean, we all, like TGIF, is it Friday? 
No, tomorrow. Anyway, tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> so soon enough. But and we'll we'll teach them. We'll teach them the rest. We'll teach them how to right. make the widgets here. But um, those sort of basic. You talked about basic competencies, but certain attributes of character and person as well to be success to well, be able to pass a drug test for Pete's sakes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, John Boehner. Yeah, excuse me. Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. I, and, and I really encourage those in the business community to engage educators in education um, because, again, I think the silos have been artificially uh, constructed there. Right. And it's, I think it's imperative that the business community have a voice into what's happening in K-12 Absolutely. education and Absolutely. certainly in higher ed. And, um, again, I, I can refer to a school that I visited in Tennessee, in Murfreesboro, where the Chamber of Commerce and some of the large employers in the area came together with this high school and, again, created a uh, a program, a, a bunch of uh, programs and pathways for students to get a taste of what could be with some of the large employers in the area and what those futures might look like and would get them prepared for uh, engineering and um, and other four-year pursuits. But it was really a very cohesive effort, and it, it, I, you know, was very admiring of the way the business community was brought in and welcomed to be a part of that conversation. And it's, it has to be a two-way street because um, I, I think there's been a resistance to really engage business in some of these efforts. Yeah, and what I've found is there's a certain reluctance of these hard-driving business types when they're hard-driving their own business will not tell you what they're really thinking when it comes to education. Say, well, you know, we want to hear from you in the same candid way that you would run your company. And that right. would be, I think, a very good exchange. Right. You know, what's interesting in listening to you, I see we're running out of time. But I was going to encourage you at the end to visit more schools, but you've already cited about seven, which is great. I mean, to make each point, you talked about a visit. So Shakespeare says to give to airy abstraction a local habitation and a name. <laughs> and you've given a lot of local habitations and names. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank you, Secretary. You, um, I think we both hope when we meet in 20 years, 25 years with the Secretary of Education then, that we'll say, you know, it's not flat anymore. It really, after DeVos, it just really went up. And I'm just very hopeful going. that uh, for our nation's future that we, we have to go in that direction. We not at do. risk anymore. How about that? How about that a book a in 20 thing. years, not at risk anymore? That would be a, a wonderful thing. And we'll yes. blurb it. You and I will blurb it. Okay. <laughs> there we go. All right, that was my conversation with the current Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. And that's just about it for this episode. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett and like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and friends. We will catch up next week. Thanks so much for listening. 